Welcome to episode 279 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, aka it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration. And electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons 
reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 279 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey there. And Cynthia, I have a sort of fun topic that we can talk about briefly, if you would like. So you already know this because I asked your advice about it yesterday. For listeners, yesterday I went to a gender reveal party for one of my friends and it was an evening event and I knew there was drinks and wine. I actually asked her ahead of time. So I was asking Cynthia, I was like, is it okay if I bring my own organic wine to this pregnancy related event if there's already drinks you said that you thought that would be appropriate so i did but i did not bring dry farm wines and i regret that decision my <laughs> my aura ring this morning it's crazy how much it knows when you're drinking wine you shouldn't be drinking and maybe too much of it and not sleeping well. But what's really interesting is my sleep was great. Um, It's just my readiness score is awful. I bring it up because I I think I need these moments to remember why I only drink dry farm wines. And you recently interviewed Todd White. I did. It was actually really, first of all, it was really interesting to prep for that discussion. And then when I got off the phone, I actually, or sorry, got off the recording, I was saying to my husband, it has been very common for me over the last several years to just send team members, family members, subscriptions to dry farm wines and how easy that has been. And I said, I I didn't fully appreciate and realize the differences between conventional winemaking here in the United States versus natural practices. And, And, you know, certainly from this point going forward, I really understand and appreciate the chemical and exposure load that you get from conventional wine, which I I was really, let me be very clear. I I think I'm a pretty well educated person about, you know, the food processed food industry and, you know, nutrient dense whole foods, but I hadn't really considered the net impact of conventional winemaking here in the United States. And so that was a really enlightening podcast. So I can imagine how you felt differently. And I, I think you, if I, if I recall from our conversations the last few days, you were planning on bringing an organic option or organic options with you. So even with the organic wines, you still felt poorly. I wonder if it was the alcohol content. I was telling you this already, but basically at home, I only drink dry farm wines. And, and for listeners that are not familiar, they're not a wine 
producer. They're actually, they're kind of like an investigator and a distributor. So they go all throughout Europe, only Europe, because Todd says that none of the U.S. wines meet their standard. And I think that's in part because of just how saturated the U.S. environment is in pesticides, even organic, like plots of land, the wineries from there, they they did a test. I don't know if he, did he bring up the test that they did a while ago and they tested all these different wines in California, including organic ones and every single one tested for pesticides, which is just crazy. So they find the wines that are low in sugar. So less than I think one gram and then low alcohol. So 12.5% or less. And then they test them for heavy metals, pesticides, mold. And I just, I noticed such a difference drinking them. So, but what I did for this party was I do have a collection of wines that are not dry from wines that are organic that I just have from over the years that I'm not going to drink by myself in my apartment because I really just drink the dry from wines. So I bring them to events like this, but now in retrospect, I'm like, I should have just brought dry from wines. Then again, I did have a lot. Well, maybe, maybe it was dose dependent, meaning perhaps if you had had like one glass of the organic wine, maybe you were fine. And maybe it was like two glasses might've been just enough to disrupt your sleep quality. Yeah, probably. That's my guess. Like I always say, maybe it's dosage dependent. Like I used to say that to patients, like maybe it's the quantity and not so much per se that it was not a dry form wine. But but the one thing that I think I was really surprised by when I spoke with Todd was the differences in alcohol content. So conventional wines can be greater than 15% alcohol versus 6 to 12.5 is I think where most of the dry farm wines really run. And they are, as you mentioned, lower sugar. And so we know that that impacts us in pretty significant and profound ways. So, but did you have fun? Yes, I had so much fun. It was fabulous. And even that, even that said, like, I'm still, I'm still good. Like, this is not like my, <laughs> my college days or anything, but no, I did. I had not been to a gender reveal party before. So I, neither have I, but that also says like generationally where I am, like my oldest will be 17 next week. And so I'm just at a different, like when I was pregnant, people chose to either find out at 20 weeks, what gender child they were having or not. And so it just there, you know, now, now people can find out a whole lot earlier and, and it seems to be like something that's very trendy and fun. And, you know, I, I think there's always opportunities to celebrate babies. It's such a fun, exciting time. Yeah, I agree. So it's funny. They wanted you to wear blue or pink based on what you thought it would be. So I only wear black dresses. So I, so, but, so I wear a black dress, but then I wore sparkly shoes that were blue and pink. I like that. You were, you were in a neutral zone. Yep. (laughs) So yeah. But for listeners to learn more about dry farm wines, which I'm just so obsessed with, our link will get you a bottle for a penny. So go to dryfarmwines.com slash ifpodcast, and that's where you can get that offer. And then, Cynthia, when do you air that episode with Todd? Actually, next Saturday. So it will be August 13th that episode will air. Okay, awesome. So that'll actually be aired by the time this comes out. So we'll put a link to that episode. We'll also put a link to the episode that I did with Todd way back in the day. He was one of my first episodes on biohacking podcast. I'll also put an episode, we've had him on this show. So I'll put a link to that as well. Yeah. He's a great guy. And and it's interesting because I'm married to a Todd and my Todd really likes the red selections from dry farm wines. And that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. They, they recently, I recently placed an order and he always feels like there's too much white wine in our house. I think because maybe our guests drink the red wine you know, this last order that we've received, he's been very happy with. Well, so that's something, because I know that you personally, you don't drink at all, right? I don't. It's the only thing that really erodes my sleep. And and by this, for everyone who's listening, if you're not yet in the perimenopause range, it is the only thing that gives me hot flashes. So I just don't drink for that reason, because hot flashes, especially when you're trying to fall asleep, are not fun. But yeah, that, that was a large decision why I stopped drinking much of anything. And I didn't drink much to begin with. I've always been more of a very, very light drinker. So with me having drank the dry farm wines over the trajectory of their, because I probably started, I don't know when they were founded. Seven years ago, I think Todd was saying. 
Okay. So I started drinking them in probably 2014 or 15. So I probably started drinking them right at the beginning, like 2015. They have not improved, but they have sort of improved. So like you were talking about the red wines. So in the beginning, most of the reds all were very, very light. Like they didn't have many more robust reds because I think it's harder for them to find those that fit all their criteria, but they have evolved. That's a good word. They've evolved so much in the red wines that they source and some of their wines are just delicious. Awesome. You can drink them with a good conscience. Oh yes. And now I think I need these nights every now and then like last night to further appreciate why I only drink dry farm wines normally. So before we jump into questions, Cynthia, would you like to tell listeners one more time about the giveaway that you are doing? Yes. So this is the last week of the giveaway. And all we're asking you to do is if you've purchased my book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, please leave a review, screenshot the review, send it to questions at ifpodcast.com, and you will be eligible for an entry you have to live in the continental United States. And it's a grouping of some of my favorite products from Designs for Health and a few other wonderful retailers that I work very closely with as a thank you. So we'll pick one winner. This is the last week of the giveaway. So please make sure you get your entries in and we will look forward to randomly selecting a winner. And I will just say, so I know a lot of you guys have Cynthia's book because we get feedback. I see it in the groups. But we haven't had that many entries, and I'm just saying that to say you have a good chance of winning. So if you have the book... The odds are in your favor. (laughs) Yeah. I always like to emphasize this because I think with giveaways where people think, oh, there's so many people entering, like I have no chance of winning. But a lot of people will think that, and (laughs) and you do have a good chance of winning. And it also just really helps support Cynthia's wonderful book, and we'd be so appreciative. So definitely, definitely do that. And I don't think until I wrote a book that I realized how important those reviews are. So please know that each and every review I appreciate on a level beyond I can properly articulate. There are so many people that have really benefited from the book. So I'm speaking from a place of gratitude and I would love to be able to send these goodies to one select individual. So definitely get those those entries into us. Shall we jump into some questions for today? Absolutely. Okay. So to start things off, this is a long question, but she has a kind of a fun story. And then she has a lot of questions that we could just sort of do rapid fire. So this comes from Doreen and she wrote this to us back when Jen was on the show. So she says, hi, Melanie. Hi, Jen. Let me start off by saying I absolutely love the podcast. I feel like you ladies have become my friends. You make me smile and laugh. You're smart. You're funny. Initially, I was listening in no specific order, but then I decided to listen every Monday to the new episodes and backtrack when I'm walking. Like many of your listeners, I have many questions that sometimes get answered before I need to submit them. I have several drafts with questions, but I can't prioritize which questions are the most important. Finally, after listening to episode 159 with Dr. Anna Kabeca, I have been motivated to get some questions answered. Really quick question for you, Cynthia. You're personal friends with Anna Kabeca, right? I am. She's wonderful. She's been, I think she's actually been on this show twice and on my biohacking podcast, maybe twice. She's done a lot of interviews with her. I really like her work. So Doreen says, I am 54 years old, a certified personal trainer and yoga certified. I teach mainly hot yoga. It's very tough with a mask. I was heavy as a teenager at five feet two, 184 pounds. My family celebrates everything with food. I'm Italian. At 16, with mom's help, I joined Weight Watchers and reached my goal in 1981. I'm still an active lifetime member and still track and weigh every few months. Diet and exercise and healthy eating, I've managed to stay within a six to eight pound window with the exception of having my two children and some health issues. In 2015, I was diagnosed with cancer. I caught it at early stage one. I did have some weight gain that crept up. And I don't weigh myself now because of the way my clothing had stopped fitting. My first thought during the pandemic was panic. I'm going to gain weight without hot yoga. So I took to the pavement. I started walking. During walks, when my friends got back to work, I would binge listen to podcasts and I didn't gain the weight. Based on listening alone, I began adding IF into my routine and I feel fantastic. It's also helped with health issues, IBS and GERD, etc. Melanie, I tried to get your book. And Barnes and Nobles had no copies. 
I was very excited to crack the book on our road trip from Long Island to Vermont. One of our favorite stops is for a place called the Creamery, which is a cute little country store. It's a constant on our trips to Vermont. I promise there's a reason for this story. I'm a shopaholic. So while my husband and friends were getting the ice cream, I was power shopping around the store. I looked up and could not believe my eyes. To my surprise, staring me in the face was a copy of What When Wine with Melanie's beautiful face on the cover. I screamed and was so excited. And of course, I bought it. It was divine intervention and favor. In Ludlow, Vermont, they're carrying Melanie's books. Okay, I just have to stop. This blows my mind. <laughs> like, I can't believe my book was in this random like country store in Vermont. That is so random to me. Do you think these stores just order books and resell them, I guess? Well, I, I suspect maybe the owner or someone who's connected with the owner probably is a fan. Wow. That would be so exciting to me if I was like in some random little country store and saw my book, I would like not know what to do. <laughs> You've made it, you know, You've saturated the the rural country market. I know, I know. So Doreen, thank you for sharing that story. That really made my day. Okay, so now she has rapid fire a lot of questions. Here we go. Number one, with regard to ketones, pH levels in urine and all measures to determine clean fasting and eating. During the podcast with Dr. Kabeka, she discussed how important it is to test your urine for pH levels. Regarding ketones, I believed you said one could be burning ketones even though you don't turn the strips purple. There's also a question about blood sugar. I remember a discussion of different types of testing for blood sugar and blood fasting sugar. What's the difference? It would be very helpful if you can clarify the importance of measuring pH levels in urine, ketone burning, and blood sugar. And which tests for IF purposes would be best and where to get these kits and tests and will they cost a fortune? Okay. So ketones, pH testing, blood sugar testing. Would you like to talk a little bit about this, Cynthia? If you've been fasting and you're not new to fasting, then I would not anticipate that you would have urinary ketones present. It's much more accurate to actually test blood but for the purposes of your constellation of questions, I would say that as a woman, that it sounds like you're in perimenopause, menopause, that it'd be most valuable for you to know a fasting insulin and a fasting blood sugar. And a fasting insulin, you can get drawn with regular lab work. A keto mojo is a good meter to use if you want to track your blood ketones. And then lastly, a fasting blood sugar with a glucometer or if you you know want to have a continuous glucose monitor is typically where I stay. I think it's important to know what your blood sugar is when you are in an unfed state. And I think it's equally important to know what your blood sugar is in response to stress, nutrition, meals, exercise, et cetera. So there's a lot of different variables to look at. I did a really great podcast. I know that Kara Collier has been on my podcast and also Melanie's biohacking podcast at least once or twice. And that's a really fantastic resource. And we will link that in the show notes. Do you put much weight into measuring the pH levels? No, I don't. I really don't. I, I, I think that there are a lot of metrics that we can measure. It doesn't necessarily mean that the information is all that valuable because if you're eating a nutrient-dense whole food diet and you're not drinking excessively and you're not eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, then ideally... And I have encountered a few functional medicine practices that will have their patients do urinary pH strips, but I think it gets expensive. And I've come to find that, you know, most of us, like you and I, if you were to measure our urinary pH, it's probably more alkaline based on the types of foods that we eat. With that being said, you know, when people are trying to budget for different types of home testing or monitoring, I, I think the most valuable one of all is really looking at fasting blood sugar or looking at a continuous glucose monitor. And if someone is new to a lower carb ketogenic lifestyle and they have not been in ketosis and they're obese and overweight, then you know testing at least initially with urinary strips for ketones can be valuable. But if you are have been in ketosis and you've been fasting for a long period of time, they're not going to show up in your urine. They are going to show up in your blood. I don't know if you have anything that you'd like to add to that. I, I think the big thing for me as a clinician is there's a lot of metrics that we can measure. It doesn't mean we should measure everyone. We should 
decide based on our budget and our interests, what is the greatest priority? Like I'm getting ready to bring the Keto Mojo individuals onto the podcast to talk more about testing ketones because I, I get a lot of questions about it, but it really needs to be taken in the context of what are your risk factors? Are you insulin sensitive? What are you trying to measure? What are the metrics you really want to look at and going from there? Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near-infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near-infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near-infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Are you interviewing Dorian? I am, but not until February because right now I'm booking into March. Yeah, which is, I took time off around the book launch and now we're we're back into eager beaver stage where we're booked out like six months. I am um, just having flashbacks because I connected with him like right when they launched, I think as well, and had him on this show. I think we had him on this show. He's British, right? <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks to his act. He has the best accent. And then his wife, I guess, is Gemma. Is she British as well? No, she's American, but they're really cute. They're like cute little couple. Oh, Yeah, I'll just echo everything that you said just to really burn it into people's heads. So with the ketone urine strips, like Cynthia said, if you've been fasting for a while, if you've been even ketogenic for a while, you might not see that on your urine. They're really, I think they're most useful for somebody going from a standard American diet, not fasting to either ketogenic diet or fasting, because it it kind of shows when you start just in general creating those ketones and the excess are spilling into the urine, but then the body becomes more efficient and you don't see that as much necessarily. So there's really a time window when I would use those. And then for the the blood sugar testing, yes, we are major, major fans of continuous glucose monitors. 
So those will really give you, because she's asking about the difference between the fasted blood sugar and then just the blood sugar. So it's always blood sugar, (laughs) but it's either fasted or postprandial, which means after a meal. And the only difference is just based on if you ate or not. And so the levels might be different based on that. And so a continuous glucose monitor is so helpful because, or can be, because it shows you constantly how your blood sugar is reacting to fasting or eating short of that with just like a finger prick type situation. And this is what Cynthia said as well. So I think we're very aligned. I think if you had to choose, once you try a continuous glucose monitor, you will realize just how much potentially your blood sugar can change even minute to minute. And I say that because you might do a finger prick and get a number that if you had tested, you know, 15 minutes earlier would be, you know, pretty different. So it's a much more clear picture with a continuous glucose monitor. If you don't like pricking yourself or you don't want to be pricking yourself all the time and you had to pick like one time to prick yourself, I would probably go the Marty Kindle route, which is right before eating to see if you actually are in a lower blood sugar state ready for that meal. Because he talks about his data-driven fasting is all about how people will open their eating window when they actually have high blood sugar. So like they think they need fuel, but they actually don't. So it's very interesting. So the link for that is nutrisense.io slash ifpodcast. And the coupon code ifpodcast will actually get you $30 off any subscription to a CGM program. So definitely check that out. That can be a really helpful resource. So her next question, she says, I'm in between ADF and one meal a day, depending on what's happening in my life. Sometimes I will do four straight days of 18-6, but then eat regularly on the weekend. I thought this protocol was good. Is it? There is a gray area in discussion about this topic. Do you agree that every day shouldn't be a short eating window? Please clarify. I find myself contradicting my thoughts and I feel worried about opening my window too early. I'm actually very curious your thoughts on this, Cynthia, because Jen would talk about this a lot, which was in particular in regards to ADF, which is something that I personally have never done ADF, but she would often talk about the importance of if you're doing ADF, not having a shorter eating window and you know not under eating on your fasting day. So I'm really curious your thoughts on that and also on just if somebody was doing like one meal a day, every day type situation. Well, I think listeners are probably not surprised to hear that I don't like ADF or OMAD as a sustained strategy for women or men for that matter, because you there's just no way you're going to be able to get in enough protein in one meal or you know this alternate day fasting. And there's a lot of what I believe to be emerging both anecdotal and also research to suggest, unless someone's really stubbornly obese and is really trying to break through plateaus, most of us that are close to our ideal body weight, you start looking at the law of diminishing returns. And so you just can't build enough muscle protein synthesis. And I've spoken to Gabrielle Line about this extensively. I've spoken to Ted Naiman. And for listeners, those are both physicians in that space about how to stoke appropriate muscle protein synthesis. So I do like people varying their their fasting and feeding windows. I think variety is very important, not just in our, our fasting windows, but also in the foods we choose to eat. I like a lot of variety. Same thing with exercise. However, especially when someone is is trying to figure out what works best for them, it requires a degree of, of experimentation. What gives you plenty of energy? What supports sleep habits? What is allowing you to break through a plateau? Do you need to be honest with yourself about the fact that you're not eating a particularly nutrient-dense diet and then you're attempting to do these prolonged fasts to kind of work through challenges that you're experiencing? And, and, I'm, and I'm starting to believe and starting to speak about this more that I, I, I'm starting to see many women in particular that are doing this over-fasting, over-training, over-restriction in an effort to lose weight. And we will obviously unpack more of this as, as the podcast goes on. And I'll certainly be talking about it on my own podcast. But in the context of, of this question, I don't like ADF and OMAD for a sustained strategy for women. Just impossible to get your protein in 
and I'm very protein centric and I admit that, but when I look at the research and when I, you know, I'm a 50, 51 year old woman, I just realized I had a birthday last week. I have to remind myself I'm a year older. It requires a bit of effort to get sufficient amounts of protein into my diet. It is work that I'm happy to do. But I think in the context of, you know, answering this question, that that's kind of my prevailing thought process. How about you, Melanie? I keep rereading her question because I'm actually a little bit unclear now what she's actually doing because she says she's in between ADF and one meal a day, but then she says sometimes she does four straight days of 18.6. I think she's doing a lot of variety. So would you consider, so like 18.6, for example, would you consider that like a one meal a day, a six hour eating window? I guess it depends what they're actually eating during it. Correct. I think a lot of people are just eating one big meal and maybe they're not hungry at the end of their six-hour feeding window. And that's the concern that I have. You know, the more I talk to other metabolic health experts, the more I start thinking that we have to be less rigid and we need to really lean in. Like I've been experimenting this whole summer with having a wider feeding window. And, you know, especially because I've been lifting more, I've been more hungry, I've been breaking my fast earlier. I'm finding that I'm getting better results. And, you know, each one of us has different goals and, and different aspirations. But I think a certain degree of experimentation is important and to not be so rigid with, you know, if something has been working, try something and try something new. Do you know, maybe have a wider feeding window. And by wider, it's not like my feeding window is 12 hours. It might be an eight hour, a nine hour, a 10 hour so that I can, you know, have more meals with my family. Okay. Yeah. I love that. I feel like we always say that, <laughs> It's individual and you have to find what works for you, which feels like a cop-out answer, but it's so, so true because people are just so different. My individuality rules. Yes. Because like me, me, for example, I do a shorter eating window and I I, I was <laughs> thinking about this with you were talking about how you're struggling to get in enough protein. And, and so many people say that to us. Like we get so many questions about that. And it's just interesting to me because I think it's so easy for me. <laughs> like I just eat so much protein. But I think my appetite was different at 30 than it is at 51. Cause I, I've, I've tried to reflect on that. Like how much more food did I eat when I was younger? And there was definitely a point in my early forties that I felt my appetite change significantly. A lot of my patients and clients and friends, I mean, we'll talk about this openly. We're like, oh yeah, we don't eat nearly as much food. And I think that is a biologic drive. Like if you talk to someone who's 70, they don't have the appetite they had at 20. And it's because ideally we should not be in like an anabolic growth phase at that stage of our lives. Whereas like I have teenage boys and they're very much in this anabolic building stage and they're healthy, they're lean, you know, they're muscular. It's a very different phase of life. And so I think so much of it's dependent on where we are in time and space. Like it is a concerted effort for me to hit my protein macros every day. And it's not that I don't like to eat. It's, you know, protein will fill me up and then I'm full. And I'm like, okay, now four or five hours later, I eat another protein bolus. And that's kind of how I navigate. I eat a lot of eggs. Like someone asked me the other day, how do you get that much protein? And I was like, I eat a lot of eggs because I can eat a good amount of eggs and I don't feel nearly as full as I would if I ate a piece of steak. But I always like to kind of shake things up. I'm super curious. When you did have a higher appetite when you were in your 20s and 30s, did you ever do an approach like me where, I mean, I literally, the foundation of my meals is lean protein. Like I basically eat, like I don't really add fat, like it's it's hard to describe, but I, I basically just eat tons and tons of chicken, fish, scallops. Like that's like, the volume of my meal, like that's like the base of it. Did you ever do that approach or was it always in the context of, you know, adding some fats, some oils? I'm just wondering how much that affects how much you actually eat. Well, I think, I mean, you have to remember that when I was 30, I was in a hospital working all day long and, you know, I became a parent when I was 34, a second child at 36. And so I would never have been able to manage the kind of eating schedule that I have now around those responsibilities, because you're lucky if you can eat it all <laughs> when you're working in a hospital and you're rounding on patients. So I think that definitely would play a role in it. Personally, I don't do well with fatty meats. I never have. Like I would never, I don't like duck. I tend to lean into like lean cuts of meat. I've always been that way. I have a child that's the same way. I think it's just some genetic 
like prayer, you know, it's, it's this desire. Like we acknowledge, like, it's not that my body has trouble breaking down fats because I eat healthy fats, but I don't eat a lot of healthy fats. And I can definitely mitigate a carbohydrate load if I'm exercising. Like today I lifted. And so I'll probably have some fruit this afternoon after my, my dinner. But with that being said, I would not have been able to eat the way I do now if I had still, if I was still working in a hospital and had little kids, like this has been, I acknowledge that my N of one, like what works for me now is largely because I'm an entrepreneur and I can break my fast whenever I want to. Generally speaking, I can, I don't have to worry that little people are going to stick their fingers in a light socket when I'm trying to eat. Whereas now they, they largely, you know, kind of they're, I would say they're like free roaming mini adults right now. They're very self-sufficient for the most part. So it's, it's hard for me to answer that question because I, I just, I just don't know. Like even when I was in the beginning stages of perimenopause and I noticed that I had that drop off in my appetite, I really think, and I haven't been able to get a hundred percent good answer on this because I've asked a lot of people. I think it's a combination of the muscle changes that impact insulin sensitivity in, you know, late thirties, early forties. That's number one, even though I was always lifting and eating properly, et cetera. And then I do think that there's some loss of estradiol signaling in the gut that may also impact that as well. Again, I haven't gotten like great research to be able to back that up, but in talking to other researchers and clinicians, that's kind of been the working hypothesis of why that starts to happen. But we also know that physiologically, we don't need as much food as we get older, whether some people that bothers them or not. I think Mark Sisson, who I know you just interviewed on the podcast as well, he kept saying, heck, I don't eat nearly as much food as I used to. And I do just fine with, and as a guy, he's like, I do just fine having one really big meal a day. And he's like, and I'm happy. So, so many factors. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's interesting that you and I are both really similar with that lean meat thing. I still do basically lean meats most nights, but probably once a week, I just crave salmon and I'll just do like a bolus of really fatty salmon. And I've like found that that works for me right now. It's really interesting just how, you know, the body changes over time and how your cravings change. And Absolutely. And one thing I've noticed, and, and this applies to our audience and listeners too, is that I can tell like where my estrogen levels are by how much cravings I have. So I, I generally don't crave, I crave healthy food, but I don't like have cravings that wake me up at night or I don't think about like chocolate constantly or something sweet. But estrogen is this cravings modifier, if there's any way to explain it, that when our estrogen levels are optimized, it helps with insulin sensitivity, it helps with those cravings, it helps buffer. And so a colleague of mine and I were talking about, you know, how we can tell when women are in this perimenopause, menopause state, and it's like a lot of people are, they're, they're never full. Like they might've just eaten a meal, but they still don't feel full. And a lot of that can be this estrogen diminishing levels of estrogen. And so, you know, really being proactive about getting your levels tested, knowing where they are, you know, and, and if appropriate, getting some support. And that could come in the form of supplements that could come in the form of hormonal replacement therapy, depending on the individual. Gotcha. So helpful. I so love having you on this show and having your knowledge about all of this. Like it makes me so excited. I'm like, oh. So much good information for people. Okay, her next question, she says, I've been doing well with IF. I learned midway through that Splenda and my black coffee and apple cider vinegar with seltzer was a no-no or so-called, quote, dirty fast. I still found success before I learned this, but now have saved those things for when I open my window. The days when I did this and I don't open my window for 18 to 20 hours can this dirty fast still be beneficial? What I mean is I'll wake up, I'll open my window with coffee in half and half, I'll get sidetracked, I'm a touch ADD, and then several hours later, I've done an 18-6, not on purpose. So do you think my body does not repair like it would without the cream? This is a good question. I think it's important to keep in the context of dairy is insulinemic, and if you are at your goal weight or whatever metrics you're tracking, you're happy with where, where your progress has been made, I wouldn't stress and worry if one day out of the week you have a little bit of half and half or cream in your coffee. However, and I'm laughing because I was just at an event this past weekend with Vinnie Tortorich and some other metabolic health people and you know, getting clarification because 
some half and half in your coffee for one person might be a teaspoon and for another person, it might be half coffee, half, half and half. And that was the joke that Vinny was telling at this event was that get clarification. So if you're having a teaspoon or a tablespoon, that's probably not going to derail, you know, your, your overall fasting regimen. But if you're derailing your weight loss efforts because you're consuming a lot of fat, like kind of like what Melanie and I were just talking about, you know, fatty meats, just fat in general, fat is calorically very dense. It's it's great, but too much of any one thing is not beneficial. So I think it really depends on what your goals are, but I don't want anyone that's listening to stress that if one day out of the week they decide to have a teaspoon of cream in their coffee, that somehow that makes them a bad faster or a dirty faster. It's always in the context of what are your goals? What are you shooting for? If you're weight loss resistant, that's probably not the best choice. I would rather that you just use, you know, you can change the flavor profile of black coffee with things like cinnamon, which can boost insulin sensitivity. You can use high quality salt like Redmond's and we'll include a link to Redmond's. I love Redmond's. They have such great salt, but it can really change the flavor profile if you're struggling with how bitter coffee can be. But also remember, bitter means that there's a high polyphenol content in the tea or the coffee that you're drinking. And you don't want to diminish the net impact of the benefits of those bitter compounds. That makes me want to go on a really quick tangent. Actually, two thoughts. One about the cinnamon. I am interviewing on Monday, Ari Witten. You said you are interviewing him, right? I think in February. Yeah. I haven't read his first book about red light therapy, but his new book is called Eat for Energy. And he just goes into all the topics about diet and sleep and it's very supplement focused. So like what type of compounds and supplements can benefit that? It was interesting, his chapter on blood sugar he goes really hard pushing the cinnamon. I hadn't really considered cinnamon that, I mean, I knew it had those effects on blood sugar, but I mean, he really makes the case for having it with every meal, which was pretty interesting. Like how much in terms of quantity? He recommends a teaspoon added to meals. Okay. So it's not a lot. Obviously when I was doing research for the book, it was something that really stood out as something that could be, you know, certainly efficacious. And so I've recommended people sprinkle some in their coffee, but I haven't, a teaspoon's a good amount. And it was interesting because I do remember you talking about it in the book. And then I was just very, I guess, surprised about the length to which he talked about it. He talked about it and vinegar, which she talks about taking. So, oh, since you said it, people are going to really be wondering. So you don't think, <laughs> so you don't think, or do you think, how does cinnamon affect the fast in coffee? Well, it changes the flavor profile, but it's supposed to help improve insulin sensitivity. And I don't recall from the research that I looked at so long ago now, seems like it was a million years ago. What was the therapeutic amount? I would have to go back and do some digging but it's certainly not something that is that is going to break a clean fast. I, I think that's the distinction probably our listeners are, are probably focused on. But it's oftentimes the hook that I get people interested in using black coffee is use Redmond salt or try cinnamon. And almost everyone is able to ease that transition. It just helps curb that bitterness of the plain coffee. I keep mentioning Mark Schatzker's book, The End of Craving, and I finally just finished both. I was so proud of myself. I read both his other two books in like three days, Steak and The Dorito Effect. His books are just amazing. And now I really want to re-interview a carnivore figure like Paul Saladino or Sean Baker or something because he doesn't talk about it in the context of the carnivore movement or anything, but he makes a really good case for, because you're talking about polyphenols and the bitterness and how that might relate. And he talks about how basically like kids don't often like, you know, these bitter vegetables and stuff. And the carnivore movement, people will use that as a, an example of why we shouldn't be eating plants because they're saying like intuitively our bodies know not to eat it. And then we like condition ourselves to eat it. But he makes the argument that the body is like learning to eat it. Like it wasn't so much intuition that we shouldn't have eaten it. It was that our body had to like learn and adapt in order to get the health benefits from it. I just thought that was a really nice like reframe on that concept with plant toxins. Yeah. And I I think the one thing that I fervently believe having gone through a healthcare hiccup is that there was a time post-hospitalization that the only thing my body tolerated was meat. 
But then I got to a point where I started to crave vegetables. And I think as your gut heals, you become more tolerant to those plant-based compounds. I truly, truly believe that the average person should be able to eat a variety of macronutrients and not just protein. I mean, that's my feeling. I mean, I went through nine months of just eating meat and it was anytime I tried to reintroduce a vegetable, it was a disaster. No exaggeration. But I think as my gut has healed and it's it's it ebbs and flows, I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, but I definitely, you know, I, I find myself craving certain things. And it'd be interesting to see. I, I know that Paul is perhaps a bit more outspoken than Sean. And I've met Sean in person now, so I, I feel like I can comfortably say that, but it would be interesting to see what their take would be. Yeah. I'm just curious, when you were doing the meat only, were you still eating leaner cuts or did you eat fattier cuts? You know, it's funny. I've never, and, and, and it drives my husband crazy because I'm sure for everyone listening, like all of our meat prices have gone up exponentially. And my husband was grumbling about how the two ribeyes he bought were a third of the price is the filet that he bought for my birthday or, you know, whatever piece of fish I'm having, you know, there is a cost difference, but I just feel so much better. I just don't do well with very fatty meats. And just like, you'll never see me using or eating duck fat fries or using lard or tallow. Not that there's anything wrong with using those products. I just don't do well. Like it'll feel like I have a rock in my stomach and it's really unpleasant. I just tend to, and always have always done much better throughout my lifetime. It's not something that's just new to this stage in my life, but I've always craved leaner meat. I don't like, I mean, this is now we're getting into minutia, but for me, cartilaginous, very textured meat was just never something that appealed to me. And I have a child that's the same way. So, you know, there's like team lean meat, there are two of us and team fatty meat, there are two on the other side. And generally speaking, when we buy a cow share, it works out beautifully because (laughs) there are, you know, 50% of the house likes leaner cuts and 50% is more flexible. So it all works out. How about you? Did you always know that you were this way or was it just an evolution as you got more mature? When I first started doing keto back in the day, I ate fattier meats then, and I ate a lot of coconut oil. (laughs) Um, But in the context of a low-carb diet, I was much better with it. When I switched to high-carb, I couldn't do the fattier meats and the high-carb. It just, it's like I felt the fat in my system. And this this is very like, it's like a feeling, but, but basically like the next day I just felt like more sluggish. Like I felt like I wasn't like clearing the fat as much. I just feel better on lean meats. And I find with, when it comes to craving, like the thing I crave is the protein. Like I just crave that lean protein. So I like fattier meats. Like if I were to sit down and have a meal of a ribeye, like it would be delicious, but I wouldn't feel as good from it. I don't think. And that's why I was curious about when you're doing only meat. If I was doing only meat, I would be very curious. I might be better with fattier meats then, but I haven't done that in a while. No. I mean, they sent me home from the hospital telling me to eat a standard American diet, essentially, you know, a devoid of fiber, highly processed. And my gastroenterologist and surgeon were like, you know exactly what to do. And so I I recall like I, it had to be like stewed meat or braised meat. It had to be really, really like cooked meat. I remember even in reintroducing shellfish was a problem. It was a long journey, but I could eat a cooked burger like a champ. And I probably ate burgers every day. Like it was one thing that my body really had a strong desire for, but it had to be a plain burger, nothing on it, salt and pepper. That was about it. Yeah. I had one more thought. Oh, so reading his book, Steak, uh, (laughs) where he basically travels all over the world. And I mean, I learned so much and try steak in all these different countries and tries to figure out what, what makes a good steak. And after reading that book, I was craving a steak. <laughs> so I have quite a few steaks in my freezer from ButcherBox. I will say, oh my goodness. Have you had the ButcherBox fillets? Mm-mm. They're really, really good. I love carpaccio. So I pulled it out and I was like, I wonder if I can make my own carpaccio from this. So I sliced it rare and it was so tender. It was so delicious. So plug for ButcherBox. They have really good steaks. And our link for them is butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast. I'm not sure what the offer is right now, but they usually have really good offers going. I'm excited to interview him. But I think his takeaway was that the thing that most affects flavor, it's funny how just how different 
the different ideas are in different countries about what makes a good steak. The USDA Prime concept is just about the marbling. Like it's nothing about the flavor. Like, I don't know. I think it's very misleading (laughs) as far as like what makes a good steak. And then, wait, there was one other fact. Oh, this blew my mind. So the criteria for Angus steak is so arbitrary. You would think it would be from the Angus breed, but it's not. They do it based on like the criteria is like, is the cow black? Because like most Angus cows are black. And then like all these other criteria, but none of it is actually, is it an Angus steak? So there's all of these crazy nuances in the steak world that just blew my mind. I was like, oh, wow. Can't trust a label. No, I think that goes for anything here in the United States, (laughs) unfortunately. So her next question, she says, due to my health history, I get blood work frequently. My glucose is often high, 109. I don't understand. It is frustrating because I don't eat processed foods much at all. Could alcohol affect this? Before you answer that, if I'm being honest, I'm drinking more now than ever during COVID-19, but I mostly clear liquor, tequila, and vodka, and yes, wine several days a week. If my sugar is up, can I still be successful at IF? This is very confusing to me. Well, clearly it sounds like you're in perimenopause, so you're going to be prone to less insulin sensitivity. If your fasting blood sugar is 109, that's high. I would be asking for a fasting insulin. I would want to know an A1C. I'd want to look at inflammatory markers like a high sensitivity CRP. And you would be an ideal person to have a glucometer or continuous glucose monitor without question. A lot of things impact blood sugar, sleep quality, stress management, over-exercising, inflammatory foods, gut health, toxins. So I would say at a bare minimum, you need a deeper dive. But a a blood sugar of 109, if it's been that level multiple times, it's it's a wake-up call that you are, you know, you are setting yourself up to develop some degree of insulin resistance. And it's time to have an honest conversation. You know, if you're still eating gluten and grains and dairy and alcohol and processed sugars, all of those things can exacerbate insulin resistance. So it's really a wake up call. I agree. And just speaking to the alcohol piece specifically, typically drinking alcohol in the fasted state will actually lower your blood sugar. But if you're having alcohol with your meal, it also might lower the blood sugar effect, but it's, it's very individual. For some people, it would ha- might have the opposite effect because the body's processing the alcohol. And so the glucose from your meal is staying elevated in your bloodstream. Again, it's a thing where you're going to have to monitor with like a continuous glucose monitor to see how it's affecting you specifically, but agreed with Cynthia that it's concerning. So definitely something to look further into. Not to put a band-aid on it with a supplement, but something like berberine might also be a helpful supplement to integrate into your protocol. She also says she thought she was in perimenopause, but then she had a full-blown cycle and she just wanted to to point that out. So I think she was saying this because I cut down this question a little bit, but Jen had an experience, I think, where perimenopause and the definition of it and then having thinking you're done and then you're not. And so she was referring to that. Do you see that a lot with your patients, by the way, Cynthia, people who think they're at a certain point with perimenopause or menopause and then have a surprise? No, not all that often because, so let me backtrack. Over the past two years without getting controversial, if anyone received a vaccine for a virus that we have been in a pandemic over. I'll just put it that way. I've seen a lot of women in menopause that have started menstruating again. I've seen women that are peak cycling years that have gone on to have months and months and months of irregular, shorter, longer cycles. So certainly if you've been, if you've, if you fall underneath those parameters, that may be directly related to the vaccine. So let me just put that out there. Number two, generally, if you've gone 12 months without a menstrual cycle, you are menopausal. If you suddenly start bleeding after that 12 months, that absolutely warrants seeing your GYN or your internist to make sure there's no other reason to explain why that would happen. If someone is not yet in menopause and they have 18 months without a menstrual cycle and then they get one, that's obviously different. This is a question that is best directed to your healthcare professional. But again, if you're 51 years of age or older, that's the average age in the United States for menopause, and you have not had a period for 12 months or longer, and you suddenly get a period, you need to let your GYN know. That requires follow-up with them. And and it could turn out to be completely benign. However, you need to make sure it's not related to another issue. 
She has one last question. She says she's not been able to drink diet soda or regular soda since chemotherapy, which is a blessing in disguise. And she also can't consume anything with artificial lemon or lime. They all give her a horrible aftertaste, but she can have like cherry or orange Tootsie Rolls, which is strange. She says she knows we're not doctors, but do we have thoughts on why? And I will just say, I I don't know, but I will say after reading, I mentioned it already, but in particular, the Dorito effect and learning the mind-blowingness about all of these artificial flavors and how they're created and what they are and what they do and how they signal to our bodies. It doesn't surprise me that going through something like chemotherapy, I don't know what happened, but that it had some sort of effect in how your body is interpreting these flavors. So that's not surprising to me. Very common for patients that have gone through chemotherapy to develop Sometimes it can be transient, you know, short-term, but also long-term taste preferences. And I think it would be highly dependent on the type of chemotherapy that you received, whatever chemotoxic agent you received. Some of them may have more lingering long-term effects than others. That would be my first guess, but certainly something to, you know, discuss with your oncology team. If this is someone else that's listening, that's experiencing this. I have someone on my team who very openly talks about being a breast cancer thriver. That's how she refers to herself. Uh, And I fervently agree with that, that she definitely had a period of time transiently where she had some taste preferences or things that tasted metallic or cottony in her mouth that have resolved. But I think it's largely dependent on the type of cancer you're being treated for and the type of chemotaxic drug that you received. Thank you. That was so helpful. I did I did not know that. <laughs> and also Doreen sending you lots of love with that whole situation with your cancer and we're happy that you caught it early. And it sounds like the chemotherapy is going well. So very happy for you with that. So she says, I want to thank you ladies. I feel blessed beyond words to have been able to include you in my daily life. Love and light. Oh, she goes by D. So thank you D for your question which apparently was our episode. It was a, a, a long question, but we, our next episode, we're going to get a couple for sure fit in. Yes. So the show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 279. Those show notes will have a full transcript. So definitely check that out. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are I have podcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. And again, a reminder to enter the giveaway for some goodies from Cynthia. If you have her book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, or if you don't, if you get it, which you should, just leave a review on whatever platform you bought it on. It's super easy to do. And just send a screenshot of that to questions at ifpodcast.com to enter to win. And this is US Continental Residence Only. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains 8 forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers including rice which is very very common in a lot of supplements including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens 
as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market, and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium 8 at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, serapeptase. You guys love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yes, I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, thank you. Keep those great questions coming. Obviously, today was an unusually long question, but we will definitely get to several on the next episode we record. Awesome. Well, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.